This morning, if you would turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 12, as we continue through this passage. And for those who may not have been with us for the last few weeks, uh, after the service each week, I am now uh, sitting up the front here to be available for prayer, counsel, uh, sharing, questions, whatever might be on your heart uh, immediately after the service. So please avail yourself of that. And we are in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Again, on our way to understanding spiritual gifts, which will come. But there's a bit of things we have to cover, some matters we have to cover before we can get there. We're almost there. Romans 12, verse 1 through to verse 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members... And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We are in verse 2 today. At the end of verse 2, let me read the portion again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Discovering the will of God is one of those subjects that causes great controversy. Over the years, many different methods have been used to identify what is the will of God. And the following fictional, and I underscore fictional, illustration demonstrates how some Christians try to determine the will of God. When the preacher's car broke down on a country road, he walked to a nearby roadhouse to use the phone. After calling for a tow truck, he spotted his old friend Frank, drunk and shabbily dressed at the bar. What happened to you, Frank? asked the good reverend. You used to be rich. Frank told a sad tale of bad investments that had led to his downfall. Go home, the preacher said. Open your Bible at random, stick your finger on the pages, and there will be God's answer. Sometime later, the preacher bumped into Frank's family and asked how he was getting on. They said he's dead. One night he came home from the bar and committed suicide. On his bed was a Bible and a notepad. On the notepad were written two verses, Matthew 27 verse 5. Then he went away and hanged himself. And Luke 10:37 Jesus told him go and do likewise. Fictional story. Sad story. But sadly, even more than that story, often the way Christians approach the will of God. 
So what is God's will? How can I know it? This question and many others will be the theme of our message today. I want to preach on the prerequisites to service, part three, but more importantly, discovering the will of God. Discovering the will of God. Heavenly Father, as I commence to share with my people, our church, the truths found here in this text, I need great wisdom what to include, what not to. Uh, Lord, help it to be simple, to the point, helpful. Uh, Lord, whatever's not of you, may it fall to the ground and perish. That which is helpful and beneficial and a blessing, encouraging, O oh Lord, might you apply to our hearts through the Spirit of God in these next moments we have together in Jesus' name. The first thing I want us to note, and so important, point number one is the progression of the text. The progression of of the text. It is very, very important this morning that we do not lose sight of the Holy Spirit's intentional order found in this text. The Word of God, inspired by God, was written in an order that God wanted it to be. Please look at this. Romans 12 and verse 1 deals, first of all, with consecration. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You say, why is that important? Well, if you desire to know the will of God, you need to follow the pattern of God. First thing is consecration. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1. The second thing is separation. Do not be conformed to this world. If you desire to know the will of God, you must have consecration, you must have separation. Thirdly, we have the word transformation. Be transformed, verse 2, by the renewal of your mind. Consecration, separation, transformation all form chronological truths before we get to number 4, Illumination, illumination, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So if I want to re, uh, reverse this concept, you cannot understand or know the will of God unless you are first consecrated, unless you are then separated, unless you are then transformed or transforming before there is going to be spiritual illumination as to the path and the will of God for your life. You say, can I know it without? You might have some ideas, but this is God's design here. Consecration, separation, transformation, resulting in illumination. Understanding what the mind of God is. We've already noted in past messages that we are not our own. We get that. We are not our own. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we are the purchased possession of Christ and are being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Titus 2 and verse 12. That's the point of our existence here. The progression of the text, once again, requires consecration on the part of the believer, resulting in separation from the world and from worldly thinking, 
The transformation of our minds is a work accomplished by the Spirit of God when the believer renews the mind in the Word of God, which we spoke of two weeks ago, and the result of which is the ability to discern by testing the will of God. In other words, again, in other words, without consecration, Without separation, without transformation, the believer's ability to understand God's will is impeded. Impeded. Failure to renew the mind will result in blurred spiritual vision and understanding. So if you come to me, as many do, and say, I don't know what God's will is for this circumstance or this situation, the answer is going to begin the same. Are you consecrated? Are you separated? Are you being transformed in order that the Lord would reveal his mind and his will to you as you walk? So we must remember the progression of the text. That alone could be the message. Point number two. That's all well and good, but now what we need is the definition of God's will. And this will take us a little bit longer. The definition of God's will. What is God's will? How can I discover God's will? These and many others are the most common questions asked by believers today, I'm convinced. So let me give you a few scenarios here. For many, the will of God is some mysterious, incomprehensible concept that only spiritual leaders can discover. That's what some people think. It's like a game of spiritual hide and seek where the Christian must continually search for God's will because God has hidden it so well. It's like this unfair divine game whereby I chase after something and God keeps moving the posts. At least it feels that way sometimes. That's not right. For others, discovering and obeying the will of God is to be constrained. It's to be bored. For the rest of my life. It's the notion that God's going to send me to Africa as a missionary and I'm going to spend my days miserable and depressed because I can't do what I want to do. In this interpretation, the Christian is then forced to redetermine God's will by means of their own logic and desire so that they're free from what they perceive to be the life of drudgery. A good illustration of this, I like this. Walter Knight tells of an old Scottish woman who went from her home who went from home to home across the countryside selling threads and buttons and shoestrings. When she came to an unmarked crossroad, she would toss a stick into the air and go in the direction the stick pointed when it landed. One day, however, she was seen tossing the stick up several times. Why do you toss the stick up more than once? someone asked. Because, replied the woman, it keeps pointing to the left, and I want to take the road on the right. So she dutifully kept throwing the stick into the air until it pointed the way she wanted it to go. So many of us operate with this same thing. We throw the spiritual stick up in the air and when it points the way our hearts want to go, we say, aha, God's will. Or we find a text in the scripture that somehow is misconstrued and misunderstood and we make application and we go about telling everybody, this is how I know God wants me to do this. In fact, let me tell you, and this isn't in the notes, but I remember some years ago a horrendous article in a Christian magazine about a man who was a preacher 
And he believed that God had called him to the nightclubs to preach the gospel. And so he went from nightclub to nightclub. And then he believed that God wanted him to go to the nudist nightclubs in order to preach the gospel to these people. Needless to say, what occurred in that man's life was that he lost his ability to serve the Lord because he was disqualified. Um, Sometimes we want things to go the way we want them to go. Our own flesh. We need to understand, how can I figure this out? That's what we want to do today. But we must realize the will of God is not something that we can be biased about. We cannot approach it with our own biases. Otherwise, we will misconstrue scripture and many other matters and misinterpret circumstances. When discussing the will of God... We need to understand what we mean by this biblical phrase. Most theologians and Bible students believe there are three different aspects to God's will. Now, I've relabeled these because I don't really like the, uh, the labels that some have given them. I've uh, called them something different, at least some of them. Uh, so these are my interpretations of them, and I'll explain what they are. First of all, There is what we call in the scripture, at least what I call in the scripture, the sovereign will of God. Some people call this the decretive will. Theologians, if you read that in a book, they might call it the decretive will. I don't like that so much. I prefer the sovereign will of God. Now, this sovereign will of God refers to the fact that God has absolute control of absolutely everything. Everything. There's not a thing you can think about. There's not a thing you can conjure up in your mind that God does not have absolute control over. Every sparrow that falls, every life that is conceived, every sickness that occurs, all forms part of God's sovereign will. Now, let's be careful. In understanding God's sovereign will, we must draw a distinction between control and cause control and cause god has absolute control of everything but that does not necessarily mean he causes everything there's a quite a big difference for example the evil that occurs in the world is not authored by god but allowed by god that's a very important distinction That situation that occurs in that person's life is not necessarily the authoring of God, but it is within the will of God because he has control. So often what happens is people say, well, if God has all that control, why didn't he stop it? Okay, Good question. Don't run from that question. The answer is, I don't know. It's God's sovereign will. There is a reason and we know that the reason is always good, right, proper, etc. Because that's God. But when we talk about sovereign will, we need to understand control and cause. They're different. God did not create or cause evil, but he is in control of it all. Hopefully that makes sense for us. All that happens, everything that happens, forms part of God's sovereign will but it is not necessarily executed by God. Okay, If you're confused by this, join the queue because we don't have all the answers. 
But we know this teaching is true in the scripture. One person wrote, this aspect of God's will acknowledges that even when God passively permits things to happen, he must choose to permit them because he always has the power and right to intervene. God can always decide to either permit or stop the actions and events of this world. Therefore, as he allows things to happen, he has willed them in the sense of the word. Now, you may need a copy of these notes later on to have another read of that to understand what it is I'm saying. It is God's sovereign will that is most mysterious to us. And it is usually God's sovereign will that is attacked when some great injustice or trial is heaped upon us. This is not in the notes, but I think it's important for me to just take the time to mention this. When we are confronted with something that occurs in our life as a Christian or in the world as a generally unbelieving place, we need to remember God's in control of it all. But what God does, authors, will always be good and right and merciful and gracious because all that God does involves all that God is. We need to understand all that God does involves all that God is. The sovereign will is, for the most part, mysterious to us. Only in heaven, perhaps, will we get an understanding of what God was doing. You say, is there proof for the sovereign will of God? Oh, yeah. Plenty of texts. Let me give you a couple. Ephesians 1 and verse 11 says this. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It was God's divine sovereign will to rescue some from damnation. Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job says, there is nothing that you can do to stop the sovereign will of God. God will have the final say no matter what. Proverbs 19 verse 21, Solomon writes, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I would suggest to you that the most contentious passage in the Bible I'm fairly sure of all of the passages is Romans 9 verses 18 to 21, which reads this. So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? We read that portion of scripture. Most, most preachers skip over Romans 9. It's just all too hard. In Romans 9, we are told that God has a sovereign, decretive will regarding salvation and it's his mystery. We are so busy trying to figure it all out. We're not supposed to figure that out. That is his sovereign will. If you are included in the company of the redeemed, then for all eternity, you will praise him forevermore. So practice that. Stop trying to work out how it all works. God's sovereign will. And we could talk more about that at another time. The second aspect of God's will. This is what I've called the instructive will of God. 
Some call it the preceptive will of God. This second aspect, the instructive will of God, deals with revealed commands and principles found in the scripture. This is God's instructive will, which we must be ever so careful to understand and obey. We will perhaps never understand God's sovereign will in its fullness, but we must fall into submission with God's instructive will found in the pages of scripture. For example, you say, what what are you talking about here? God commands believers to only marry believers. 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked. That is a command of God found in the scripture. That's an instructive will of God. You don't have to go, well, I wonder what he meant here. You know, and some people love to, I wonder what he means by it. Very simple, it's an instruction. God commands every human everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30, you don't have to wonder, ought I to repent? Because the Bible says, repent, repent. Another one would be, God commands us not to be drunk with wine. Ephesians 5.18, the Bible makes it clear, you don't have to wonder, uh, Should I get drunk at the bar tonight? The answer is no, you should not. It's in the instructive will of God in the pages of Scripture. You ought not to do this. Another one would be Hebrews 13.5. God commands us to be content with what we have. Be content, he says. Don't look for riches and follow them and, and chase us. Be content with what you have. We could look at so many. Do not steal. Do not defraud one another. These are the instructive will of God that are as clear as day. That's the second one, the instructive will of God. And then the third one, which I have called the temperamental will of God. Some call this the perfect or permissive will of God. I don't really like those phrases. Now, word of caution, the word temperamental... I don't mean in the sense of unpredictable or erratic or volatile. We say that person, boy, they're temperamental. That's not what we're saying when we say that about God. We are saying that by temperamental, it relates to God's character, his temperament, who he is, his nature. I like to put it like this. The temperamental will of God is simply God's heart on display. What does God want? What does God love? What does God hate? That's the temperamental will of God. Let me give you an example here. Ezekiel 33 verse 11. The Bible says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God's heart is that men and women, boys and girls, would turn to his way and live. He does not find it pleasurable that they die in their sin. Another passage, which is often misused, 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's heart is that men and women, boys and girls, would understand the knowledge of the truth. Now, I know some of you more Calvinistic people in the room are looking at that saying, hang on, didn't you say his uh, his sovereign will is that he chose? Yes, I did. But his temperamental will tells me that he has a desire for people. How do those two work fully? 
That is a question of the ages. God chose and yet he invites all to come. I can't answer all of that. That is in the mind of God. But I do know this. The Bible says that in his sovereignty he chose a people for himself, but in his heart he desires that all would understand the truth and come to a knowledge of salvation. Another example of God's temperament, his heart, Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices or the pleasures of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I believe that understanding what God delights in and what he is grieved by is essential to our daily walk with him. So to recap, God's sovereign will, it will happen despite everything else. It's going to happen and it is many times a mystery to us, many times. And then we see God's instructive will, that which he clearly says, do this or don't do that. And then God's temperamental will, his temperament, his desire, what he wishes doesn't necessarily happen. But that's the desire of his heart towards people or a circumstance. I believe that the temperamental will of God is where the intimacy and closeness with God is had. Anybody can religiously obey the instructions of God. Do not steal, do not do this, do not do that, do this, do this, do this. They can do that without a heart. But very few come to know what God loves and what God does not love. And this is discovered in the pages of Scripture. So here's the question, all of that information overload for you. I had to go through it quickly because I've got a lot here and I'm trying to keep it short. Which of these wills is the one in Romans 12? So Romans 12 again, let's look. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. Is it his sovereign will? Is it his instructive will? Is it his temperamental will? Which of these is the one I'm supposed to discover by my consecration, my separation, my transformation? What is it that I'm supposed to uncover? I believe... Nobody will ever fully understand God's sovereign will. I don't think it matters how consecrated you are. I don't think it matters how separated you are. I don't think it matters how transformed your mind. You're never going to fully comprehend the mind of God because if you could, you'd be God. So it's not that one. I believe that it is both the instructive and the temperamental will of God that Paul is referring to. Knowing the commands of God and the heart of God as a direct result of our minds being renewed and the transformation that takes place. That's what I believe. And that's what we're going to be looking at for our remainder of our time here. So the definition of the will of God. Number three. Now we get to, well, what might be considered a little bit easier, the discerning of God's will. The text says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. The word discern is a wonderful word. It is used in reference to the trying of gold or metal or precious stones by the refiner's fire. It's this word that I take this 
jewel and I place it through the refiner's fire so that all the dross and all the rubbish is removed. I scoop it off and I have a purified stone or gem. This is the word that's used here. It's proven to be genuine after examination. That's what this word means. Now, church, if there is one thing in 21st century Christianity that we need, it is discernment. It is discernment. So much is done today in the name of Christ and in the name of Christianity, which is not tested. It's not examined. It's not tried by the fires of divine scripture. And the result of this lack of discernment and examination is devastating. People believing all manner of things because the man or the person up the front is saying this or that and the people are totally undiscerning regarding it. And I hope that that is not what we are setting up. We don't want a papacy. We don't want someone who stands and simply says what they want to say and everybody just believes that that's a cult. God has called us to be discerning, discerning by the pages of his word. And so my heart's desire is that from here today, you will take these truths and begin to discern. Was that true? Was that real? Is this the genuine article of faith that we are asking? We are. We're called to be Bereans, to study the word of God. Correct. Exactly. That's what we're called to do. And we must do that. We must renew our mind in the pages of scripture. Otherwise... We will not have discernment. Ephesians 4.14 says this, that those who don't are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Note this, it is God's will that you understand his will. It's God's will that you come to understand his will. Okay, number four. We've got five, so we're almost there. Not really. There's a bit more to go. Number four, I want to talk about the nature of God's will. I mentioned before that some look at God's will as though it were some tiresome, uninspiring and tedious matter. But in our text in Romans 12, Paul includes three wonderful adjectives. And they describe the nature of the will of God. Have a look with me here. That by testing, by discernment, you would know what is the will of God. And then he goes on to say, that which is good, acceptable and perfect. Let's look at these for a moment. The will of God is good. This means it's righteous. It's morally upright. It also speaks of pleasantness, of joy and of beauty. To know and walk in the will of God is to walk in an upright, pleasant, joyful manner. The word acceptable, second word here, literally means, literally is well-pleasing. Well-pleasing. You say to whom? Well-pleasing to the Lord, first of all. But it's also well-pleasing to the believer to walk in the will of God, to understand and to know it will not only be upright, but it'll also be well-pleasing. 
for those who propose that submission to the instructive will of God and conforming to the temperamental will of God will be sorely disliked and unpopular. The Bible teaches otherwise. And my testimony is that there is nothing more exciting. There is nothing more adventurous. There is nothing more fulfilling than knowing and walking in the will of God. There are blessings beyond comprehension, remarkable answers to prayer and breathtaking experiences with God and a journey beyond all earthly comparison when we're in accordance with the acceptable will of God. I love what George Robinson wrote in that great hymn. Speaking of one who is walking with the Lord, he says, Heaven above is softer blue. Earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue that Christless eyes have never seen. There's birds with gladder songs that overflow. Flowers with deeper beauties that shine. Since I know as now I know, I am his and he is mine. Things that once were wild alarms cannot now disturb my rest. I'm closed in everlasting arms. I'm pillowed on the loving breast. Oh, to lie forever here, writes Robinson. Doubt and care and self-resign. While he whispers in my ear, I am his and he is mine. There is an incredible intimacy, an incredible adventure to be had in the will of God. The third word, the word perfect, speaks of completion of fulfillment, consummation. When we come to understand God's will for our lives, we will find it to be good, to be well-pleasing, and to bring a great sense of fulfillment, accomplishment, and contentment. Do you know who the most content people in the world are? It's not those who have the most money. It's not those with the castles. It is the Christian who is walking in God's will. And you say, prove it. Can you show me somebody in all of history who joyfully was able to walk towards the stake about to be martyred for Jesus Christ, singing hymns of praise with total contentment? Is there any other place in the world where someone could do that? The answer is no. The contentment that fills the heart of one walking in the will of God can take them to the stake whereby they do not ever need to be tied, but they can say, leave it, don't tie me. I am prepared to die for my saviour and I will go dying and singing as I do it. What about the Apostle Paul and Silas in prison at midnight? They'd been beaten, they're in chains, they're in fetters, they're bound together and at midnight they begin to sing. How can that happen? The will of God is a great place of contentment. It's pleasing and it's acceptable. And unless you are walking in it, you don't understand the fullness of joy that there is to be had in this life when we walk in the will of God. God designed you to be discontent with absolutely everything that is outside his good, acceptable and perfect will. God designed it that way. God wants you to be unhappy when you're outside of his will. You say, what? That's not very nice. That's his design, that your heart would not be satisfied with things around you when you won't walk in his will. It's that this niggling within me, that something isn't right about what I'm doing here. That's God's design, that you would remain discontent and unhappy until you consecrate, until you separate, until your mind is renewed and he illuminates his will for your life. Wow. Point number five and the final one. 
walking in the will of God. Before I close, a lot of this is very intellectual. A lot of it is a lot of information. I want to talk about some practicalities as we close. Here's five important truths to remember as we look to discover fully God's will personally for me and for you in a given situation. First of all, remember the progression. Remember the progression. Again, consecration, separation, transformation, and then illumination. Please remember that progression. This is God's will as listed here in Romans 12. If you fall out of line with any of those, it's not surprising that your vision is spiritually impaired. So here's some questions to ask in this situation. I have a situation perhaps in front of me, whether it's a a simple situation or it's a, a large decision to be made in my life. Here's the questions to ask under this first point. Am I entirely consecrated to the Lord? Is there a part of my life that I have withheld from him? I say, Lord, you can have anything but but this part. Is there an account in my life, a bank account that I'm prepared to say, Lord, you can't have that. That's my bit. You can have everything else. That's not consecration. Is there any aspect of my life that is not fully consecrated to him? That's a question I have to ask. The next question I have to ask is, do I want my will or do I want his? See, many times we approach God and we throw the spiritual stick up and we keep throwing it up until it turns the direction we want it to go. That's not looking for God's will. You may as well not even ask him because it's me being concerned with what I want and waiting for some sort of thing to happen that I can say, aha, see, after five throws of the stick, it went the way I wanted it to. That's not the way God designed it. That's being biased. It's coming with my goals. The question is, am I diligently seeking truth in God's word? Am I in the scriptures? Am I renewing my mind? Am I finding in the pages of scripture great joy and contentment and looking and searching for what God would have? Now, some people will say, well, hang on a second. Um, I'm facing the, the conundrum where my car is breaking down. I need to buy a new one. I don't think, I looked in the concordance, there's no Toyota in the Bible. Now, some would say, well, there's a Ford because they crossed the Ford. Well, maybe I should get a Ford. No, that's not right. Tim's going, yeah, yeah, go forward, go forward. Now, there's a triumph in the Bible. Joshua's triumph was heard all through the the land, the Bible says. So I should buy triumph. We know that the specific nature of that vehicle or the specific nature of that home or whatever else may not be specifically listed. We're not looking for go buy that house on Vickery Street. We're not looking for that. We're looking for our minds to be renewed constantly so that we can think spiritually. That's what we're looking for. Okay, so we've got to ask, am I in the word? Here's a hard one. Am I content with any answer from the Lord? So as I put this particular situation in front of the Lord, I pray, I'm reading the word. Am I content with any situation that comes out of it? Am I content with anything, God? So perhaps you're thinking about a house, perhaps you're thinking about a car, perhaps you're thinking about a holiday or moving house or moving location. I don't know. Whatever you're thinking about, put that before the Lord. And now the question is, am I happy? Am I willing? Am I prepared to go anywhere, do anything that God wants me to do? Or am I coming to this with preconceived ideas and notions? Because God demands surrender. Anything, anything you want, Lord, is what I want to do. Am I walking in the spirit? 
That's what we're asking. Am I spirit-filled? Am I living day by day upon the impulses of the Spirit of God in my life? Remember the progression. Number two, and by all all means, please feel free to add to these because this is just a, a quick synopsis of what I think is helpful. Don't be driven by logic or emotion. One of the great dangers when seeking the will of God in a specific situation in our lives is to be governed entirely by our human logic. We're not saying don't allow logic to have a place. We're saying don't be driven by logical, by logic and by our logical framework. In fact, one commentator said this, God's will is often downright humanly illogical. That's true. That's true. If you're seeking a logical answer to your question, you may be disappointed. God's ways and actions are often outside our box. You know, we make this box, this framework, and God just blows that thing to pieces. And you know why he does that? It's to show that he is all-powerful and motivates within us a heart of praise towards him. I wanted God to do this for me, so I put it in this little box, and God came along and just exploded the whole thing. Took it right out of proportion. Don't let logic be the driving nature of making decisions. He performs deeds beyond our comprehension, and his works are greater than we can imagine. Consider George Mueller cared for 120,000 orphans during his life as a missionary. This is what his biographer wrote. One morning, all the plates and cups and bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the larder and no money to buy food. The children were standing, waiting for their morning meal. When Mueller said, Children, you know we must be in time for school. Then lifting up his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. There was a knock at the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have any bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send them to you. So I got up at 2am and baked some fresh bread and have brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker and no sooner had he left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in the front of the orphanage and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. Don't put God in a box. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think and your logic and emotion may well stop you from seeing the incredible hand of God at work. Number three. Don't be impulsive. Many times we are so quick. I just saw my wife smile at me. I don't know what that means. <laughs> this little smile in the corner of her eye like, ah, I hope you're listening, Daniel. I'm going to play this back to you later. No. I have a tendency and have had a tendency all of my life to be impulsive with decision making. I'm hoping God has uh, started to chip away at that. You know how he does that? He makes you become slow. And I don't mean retarded slow, I mean slow. Everything in your life just takes much longer and you, you're waiting for answers and, and that's the way the Lord slows you down. And you know why he procrastinates? Did you know God does procrastinate? You say, God? God doesn't procrastinate. Well, he procrastinates from our perspective because it's not in our time. He pushes things back intentionally so that in revealing his will to us during that process, we are dependent upon him. Rather than giving it to us now, we learn the lesson of waiting, of watching, of dependence. The psalmist said, wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage, 
wait for the Lord. Psalm 27 verse 14. You know, the danger, if we're not careful, is to do what Abraham did. God made him a promise. I am going to make of you a great nation. I'm getting old, Abraham thinks. His wife says, you know what? This probably isn't going to work. We're both pretty old now. And so she says, take Hagar, my handmaiden. And because of that lack of waiting today, we have the enemies of Israel. Have the enemies of Israel. And God blessed and God did something in spite of that situation. But Abraham did not obey the word of God in waiting. How often are we impulsive with the will of God? Number four, and we will be quick. Seek wise counsel. Please note the word wise. If you choose the wrong counsel and believe it, you will be led astray. Wise counsel is found in one who is already walking in the will of God, knows the word of God and can apply it correctly to the situation in question. The illustration at the start where the preacher said to the man, just open the Bible and put your finger on it. That's not wise. That's not wise. We need wise counsel. Hopefully, and it ought to be the spiritual leadership of a church should be our first destination these men ought to be able to provide the biblical principles needed to direct our thinking in the word. However, let me say this. If you come to me and you say, I have a question about these things, the answer is probably I don't know about the specific thing. I will gladly help you along the way of understanding how to find the will of God in a situation. But when you come to me and you say, well, what should I do about this? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know what you should do about that specific situation. I can give you the principles found in the word. Others can tell you what the word says. But the final answer is going to be between you and the Lord. The danger today is when spiritual leaders start speaking into the lives of others and saying, you must do this, 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 about things not found in the word of God. Flee from that. Run from it. We don't need that. Lastly, and it's last for a reason, consider the circumstances. I didn't say follow the circumstances, I said consider them. Experiences, situations and circumstances alone are not sufficient proof of God's will. Not alone. Is the devil not capable of placing seemingly right events and situations in our path? Of course he is. Doesn't, is, doesn't 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 say he disguises himself as an angel of light? There's no surprise that situations may come about that would lead us astray. When a situation occurs, when something happens that you've been praying about, bring that situation under the scrutiny of the word of God and before the Lord in prayer constantly. God's providence will bring circumstances together in such a way that you can be certain that this is the work of God. I can move forward because I know this to be true. Until you are given assurance in the inward witness of the Spirit and the providence of God is seen in the outworking of a situation, just be still, wait, pray, read, and he will reveal the path in his time and not necessarily on our time frame. So, so important. Walking in the will of God, remember the progression. Don't be driven by logic or emotion. Don't be impulsive. Seek wise counsel. Consider the circumstances. And may we be those who testing, by testing, discern the will of God 
and see it to be good, acceptable and perfect. Father, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the attention of my hearers today and, uh, Lord, with uh, quite a lot to cover, uh, many things said. Uh, Lord, I just pray that, again, those things that are most helpful and needed for us today, individual lives, that you would uh, help us to, uh, to apply them. Uh, may the Spirit of God put his finger on those areas of our life whereby perhaps we're not in total consecration or not in total separation. Lord, maybe our minds are not being transformed because we're not in the word. Uh, But Lord, we pray these things would be a reality so that we might know day by day, moment by moment, the will of God. Uh, We realize today that we cannot understand fully the sovereign will of God. But oh Lord, you've given us the instructive will and you've given us insight into your heart. Lord, may we be ever so careful to follow those wills, so to speak, that you have revealed in the pages of scripture. Thank you that you've not left us uh, with a, uh, an un, uh, a lack of understanding in these matters. You've given us your word. We can study it and learn from it. Help us to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.